when Phil asked me to uh, do the uh, Thanksgiving sermon, it is actually harder than you think because there's so much to be thankful for uh, us as believers. Um, where do you begin? Where do you start? Where do you, you know, where do you go with it? And I started to think about the other aspects of Thanksgiving, and naturally, the other aspect of Thanksgiving we think about is being together, feasting, and my mind went immediately to one of my favorite passages of the Old Testament, uh, which is 2 Samuel chapter 9. So if you would, uh, turn with me back into the Old Testament of 2 Samuel, and we will be in looking at all 13 verses. And I'll, uh, I'll go ahead and, and read it real quick as we uh, get there. Starting in verse 1. And David said, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul? that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake. Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba, and they called called him to David. And the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. The king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, He is in the house of Maker, the son of Amiel, Amiel at Lodebar. Then King David sent and brought him from the house and Maker, the son of Amiel, Amiel at Lodebar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan, and I will restore to you all the land that was lost. <clears throat> Sorry. Uh, the land of your, uh, Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, What is your servant that you should show him regard for a dead dog such as I? Then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belong to Saul and and to all his house I I have given to your master's grandson. And you and your sons and your servant shall till the land for him and shall bring him in the produce, that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had fifteen sons and twenty servants. Then Ziba said to the king, According to all that my lord the king commands his servant, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both his feet. I love this story. Not just because I like to say the word Mephibosheth, but um, it really paints a, a beautiful picture for us as believers. And uh, before I go into it, I would like to just do a, a recap of, of kind of this context or the scenario that is uh, being unfolded for us here in chapter 9. And, and so before we buy, uh, dive into it, um, it is necessary for us to kind of set up the, the scene here. Uh, this King David is, of course, uh, the David of David and Goliath, um, you know, who was uh, anointed to be king of Israel. Saul uh, was Israel's first king, 
but was rejected by the Lord due to his sin and was um, and found out, you know, basically, uh, and, and David becomes, you know, the gladiator who um, overcomes Goliath. He becomes a leader of, of Saul's army, and uh, the Lord gives him victory after victory, and uh, he kind of becomes, you know, the people's champion in a way, and he, uh, Saul begins to become jealous and envious and begins to hunt uh, David, tried to ki- trying to kill him in order to uh, keep him from overthrowing him. Um, and so with much jealousy, uh, Saul attempts numerous times to kill David, uh, and David spends much time on the run um, until finally Saul relents and uh, is later killed in battle. Uh, well, actually, he's killed by his own sword. Um, with all of his sons, except for one, which is Ishbosheth, which is where Second Samuel kind of picks up, and the uh, all of Israel is, is somewhat divided, where we have Judah recognizing David as king, and the rest of Israel kind of recognizing Saul's descendant, Saul's son uh, Ishbosheth, as their king, and so there's a feud going on and, and battle going on between them, and, and uh, kind of a civil war thing going on. And until uh, Ishbosheth is assassinated, whereas leaving David to become king over all of Israel at age 37. So um, that's kind of the, the context here. We read in, in, in the previous chapter that David uh, has defeated the majority of his enemies. He has victories all over his enemies. He is king over all Israel, and he's sitting on his throne, and this is where we pick up. And... <clears throat> Uh, and my first point, we'll look at the first five verses uh, in the king's invitation. And David said, And is there still anyone left in the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba, and they called to David, and they called him to David, and, and the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I'm your servant. And the king said, Is, it still, is there still not someone of the house of Saul that I may show kindness of God to him? And Ziba said, There is a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. And the king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, He is in the house of Makur, the son of Amiel, at Lodabar. And then King David sent and brought him from the house of Makur, and the son of, of Amiel, at Lodabar. Now, who is this Jonathan that the text speaks of? The Jonathan that the text speaks of is none other than the King Saul's son, first son, I believe, um, who had an incredible friendship with David when uh, David kind of first comes on the scene. Um, <clears throat> after, after David defeats Goliath and is brought into the house of Saul, we read in 1 Samuel 18 that the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David, because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David, and his armor, and even his sword, and his bow, and his belt. Uh, Jonathan is, of course, in line to succeed his father Saul as king of Israel. And David comes onto the scene, and this act of, of taking off his royal robes and, and uh, even the sword was a sign of, of your kingship, of your royalty. 
And uh, the scriptures go on to tell us that, that Jonathan, even at the expense of his own father, would, would help David. Would, uh, when Saul was trying to kill him, was trying to hunt him, uh, Jonathan would warn David and, uh, to, in order to preserve his life. Um, but not only does Jonathan does this at his own father's expense, but at his own expense. Jonathan um, willingly relents, basically, his birthright as the future king of Israel. And he, and he gives it, basically, to, John, or to David, knowing that um, he is going to succeed as a future king. And it... You know, we all know in Scripture that David is a foreshadow of Christ, but man, I'm just reading this, it just kind of reminded me, man, even Jonathan kind of foreshadows our Lord here, the, the way that he strips off or sets aside or, or uh, conceals his own glory uh, and, and humbles himself uh, for the love of the Father. And I just couldn't help but to, to think that as I was reading it. And we read uh, more in depth of what this covenant consisted of between Jonathan and David in 1 Samuel chapter 20, verses 14 through 17. He said, If I am still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord, that I may not die, and do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever. When the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth, and Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, May the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies, and Jonathan made David swear again by his love for him, for he loved him as, as he loved his own soul. The purpose of Jonathan making David or asking David to make this covenant with him um, was simple. It, it was pretty common practice, you know, and we read that in, in the Old Testament, but it was pretty common practice at this time that whenever a new dynasty would come over a, and, and overtake a monarch, monarchy or, or dynasty, um, they would slay the king, and they would slay um, the king's children, or the, the future heirs, in order to prevent any kind of um, uh, rivalry to the throne. It was a way of them preserving the throne. So you would kill the king, and you, you would kill the king's heirs, so that there was no competition. <clears throat> and uh, Jonathan makes David take this oath, and... David is finally established as king. He has ruled over his enemies, and it's like he's sitting there on his throne, and the covenant in which he's made with Jonathan kind of springs to mind, and he recounts his oath. And we realize that there is no one, as it seems, left in the house of Saul. And this, if you look at the Old Testament, if you look at the extensive... Um, family line of Saul. He, he did have a family, but we just see the, the uh, discipline of God to those who are unfaithful, and, but also his faithfulness. Because we see that in uh, verse 2, it says that Ziba, who was one of the servants of Saul, is brought forth to David. Now, Ziba was a servant of the house of Saul, and so it's like those who were around David said, if anybody knows that there's anyone left, in the house of Saul, if there's anybody who is a remaining um, heir, descendant of Saul, it would be Ziba. So they bring him forth, and Ziba tells David that not only is there a descendant, but it is the son of his beloved friend, Jonathan. And this, of course, is none other than uh, Mephibosheth. 
Now, there's not a whole lot we know about Mephibosheth um, prior to this other than what we read in 2 Samuel 4, 4, where it says, Jonathan, the son of Saul, had a son who was crippled in his feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel. And his nurse took him up and fled, and as she fled in her haste, he fell and became lame. And his name was Mephibosheth. So the news about Saul and Jonathan's death reaches the kingdom. Um, the natural response of everyone there was either the Philistines or even David himself is naturally going to come. And now that, the Saul, now that Saul's out of the picture, now that Jonathan's out of the picture, David, Philistines, whoever it is, is going to come and they're most likely going to kill Mephibosheth. So out of her love and, and in her haste, though, she picks him up and she drops him. Naturally, uh, they think that his legs were broke and at this time, so it must have been a bad fall. And uh, no time to put in stints, no time for healing. They had to go. They had to be on the run. Uh, <clears throat> so, and if we read in uh, 1 Chronicles 8.34, we'll discover that his name was not originally Mephibosheth. Uh, his name was Meribel, Baal, which most likely translates as opponent of Baal, which was a false god at this time. And his name is later changed to Mephibosheth, which means from the mouth of shame, or it has a connotation of, of being one who is, who is shamed or a shameful one. And this name was most likely given to him after this horrendous day. And he goes into hiding at the house of Maker, who seems to be a, a wealthy man in Lodabar. And Lodabar is actually an interesting uh, title. It literally means and translates as... Um, no word or, or no thing. So um, it is a negative title, basically saying that this was a nothing of a town. So poor Mephibosheth loses his grandfather, loses his father, um, becomes crippled, moves to Nothingville, and, uh, and is pretty much forgotten about. You know, this heir of the throne. Um, <clears throat> and it's interesting that that Ziba here uh, recounts that and lets the king know that he's crippled. Um, as you read on and all the way in, I think it's chapter 16, you kind of read that uh, Ziba is kind of a shady character. But we have to understand that at this time, someone in this position uh, was thought of as, as uh, being one who was a burden or useless. And we, of course, in today, know that's absolutely absurd and ridiculous, but um, that was a mindset at this time. And it was almost as if Ziba is saying to David, there is a son of Jonathan, but I wouldn't worry about him. He's, uh, he's lame in both feet. He's not worth looking into. He's no threat to you. A couple of different scholars had different um, opinions. Uh, but knowing what we know about Ziba, like I said, he's kind of a, a shady character. He's been entrusted into Saul's land. Him and his sons um, tend the land, take care of it, um, and they also reap some of the benefit of it too. So naturally, Ziba doesn't want to lose this sweet deal. And so he basically tells David, listen, yes, there is someone, but he's lame in both feet. I don't know if you want to bother with that. Upon hearing this, David immediately sends for him. And this is where we come 
to my first point, the invitation of the king. Now take notice of who seeks out whom here. It is not Mephibosheth that seeks out the mercy and kindness of King David, but it is a king that pursues him. It is a king that seeks out that which is lost. We likewise are, are sought out by our heavenly king. Luke 19.10 For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. We too are sought out and brought out of nothingness that we may enjoy the kindness of our king. The text goes on to say, And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan and son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said to Mephibosheth, and he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan, and I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? It's interesting. I mean, I just want you to kind of paint the picture here. You're Mephibosheth. You are in hiding, basically, and, and um, nothing of town, nothingville, and uh, you've been forgotten about. And all of a sudden, there's a knock at the door, and open it up, and Ziba's there saying, listen, the king knows that you're alive, and he wishes to see you. And you must come with us immediately. What is going through your head at this time? I'm dead. Can't run away, can't hide. So Mephibosheth has no idea about the covenant that Jonathan and David had. All he's thinking is that David is going to secure his throne. He's going to destroy the the line of Saul, and which was his enemy, and secure the throne. Though Mephibosheth had done nothing against David himself, by his birthright was a natural enemy to the throne. Naturally, Mephibosheth falls down in humble reverence to the king, which is a natural response when you're brought before the king. But I'm sure that he's thinking that the only way he's going to get out of this is by pleading for mercy, by being humble, and pleading for the mercy of the king. And he humbles himself, calling himself a servant, even though he is of kingly lineage. David tells Mephibosheth, do not fear. Again, common practice was to wipe out the whole line. And we must consider that just some years prior to this, the whole nation was divided. Whereas the majority of Israel wished to see Saul's line take the throne. And Judah saw David fit to be the king. So just not that far before this, we see that Israel was divided. So what if, what if they hear Mephibosheth's existence still? What if they uprise and say, well, he should be our king. He's the natural heir of the throne.
David, however, does not worry about this. He does not worry about losing his kingdom to Mephibosheth because David knows it is the Lord's hand in which has provided the throne. It was by the Lord's hand in which all this was established in the first place. And what a great contrast we have here between King David and, say, King Herod, who created mass genocide against children in order to try to thwart the plans of God, who killed children under the ages of two in order to keep from losing his throne to this king that was supposedly born. What a great example we have when it comes to our own possessions and places. How tightly we hold on to our wealth, our possessions, our positions. Not realizing it is the Lord that has provided all these things. James 1.17 says, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. Coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. A prime example of this is when Christians say that they trust in the provisions of the Lord and they, they trust in His sovereignty, but they can't bring themselves to tithe. They can't bring themselves to extend um, help in the, for those in need. We cling so hard with all of our strength to these things, not realizing that it was never by these means in which we acquired them in the first place. David tells Mephibosheth, do not fear because he's going to show him the kindness for the sake of Jonathan. David keeps his oath to Jonathan by showing Mephibosheth the kindness that Jonathan requests of him back in 1 Samuel 20, 14-17. There Jonathan requests of David to show him, and your translation may say kindness. Um, show him that kindness or the love of the Lord to his future Seed. This kindness and love that transcends everything, transcends the, the kindness of man, it goes above and beyond. I remember listening to uh, Norman Geiser, who is a uh, Christian apologist, and he said that he was uh, speaking at, at a, uh, I think it was a college campus, and a critic got up, and there, I think he was talking about the law of God and, and our morality and um, and a critic got up and said, there's one thing that God did not list in his commands and his law. Nowhere will you see in the Bible God commanding his people to be tolerant. And Norman Geist said, man, I, I, was, I was captivated because I couldn't wait to hear what you know, God had forgotten. And, but to this man, tolerance was, was key in, in civilization. And Geyser simply replied that tolerance is not used in the Bible at all because it is too weak of a word. He said, tolerance says put up with them. Love says reach out to them. To go above and beyond. This is the love and kindness that we as Christians should be characterized by. David does not simply tolerate the existence of Mephibosheth. He does not say, for the sake of Jonathan... I'm going to let you live, and I'm, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make sure you're kept alive. I'm going to tolerate your existence for the sake of Jonathan. Now here we see the kindness of the king. 
Not only am I going to, I'm not going to tolerate you, I'm going to, I'm going to love you. I'm going to go above and beyond. This is the love and kindness of God. And I believe that both the world and, and, and Christians kind of fall on, on both sides of this. The world thinks in order to be loving, we must be tolerant of everything. And I've, I've talked to Christians that think, oh, I don't like this person, but I tolerate them, therefore I'm being loving. Or I, I tolerate some of the things that they do. I don't, I don't be, I'm not judgmental, therefore I'm being loving. Sometimes to be loving is not to be tolerant of things. Tolerance says, put up with them. Love says, reach out to them. Go above and beyond. And this, of course, mimics that of our heavenly King, our Lord Jesus. Matthew 5, 40-41, And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him too. This is the love. This is the kindness of God that goes above and beyond. David then continues to reveal just in what way he's going to show this kindness to Mephibosheth. He's going to give him all the land that belonged to Saul. He is going to restore to him all that once belonged to Saul, all that was lost by Saul. On top of this, David tells Mephibosheth that he will eat always at the king's table. And this, of course, is a, is a place of honor, a place of, of privilege, reserved for those of, of great importance within the kingdom. David restores to Mephibosheth all that, that was lost by his grandfather, including a high status among the people of Israel. This, beloved, is, is exactly what our Lord and Savior has done for us. Jesus came to show the love of God to us by restoring to us that which was lost by our forefather Adam. The land was a, a great blessing, but it, it is overshadowed here by the fact that Mephibosheth now feasts at the king's table, has direct access to the king. This was the great blessing. This was the true kindness of the king. The Garden of Eden was great, but what made it great was the fact that man could commune with God. At Christ's death, the curtain was torn, symbolizing our access now to the Father. Mephibosheth's reaction is of great astonishment and gratitude. Here, Mephibosheth was expecting to be killed, thinking that I'm going to be killed right now, my, the heir of Saul, my, my lineage, everything is, is going to uh, be destroyed and be taken from me. I'm going to lose my life. But instead receives mercy. And on top of that, blessing. And here Mephibosheth refers to himself as a dead dog. A dog was a, a scavenger of an animal and was commonly used as, a, as an insult. And, uh, and even more, to refer to oneself as a dead dog, which would be unclean, is even more of a debased thing to compare oneself to. But this phrase is interesting because dead dog 
only occurs two other times in the Old Testament. The one other time that it occurs before this is used by none other than King David himself. When Saul is, is hunting David and he's trying to, trying to kill him and, and um, David has the opportunity as Saul sleeps to, to kill him and um, to end this whole thing, David instead shows him mercy and cuts off a piece of Saul's uh, cloak, revealing that, that he could have killed him. And David shouts out to, to Saul in, in 1 Samuel 24, 14. He says, after whom had the king of Israel come out? After whom do you pursue? After a dead dog, after a flea. What David is saying here is, is I'm nothing. Why are you chasing after me? I am no threat to you. I'm a, I am a dead dog, a, a flea. He humbles himself before Saul. And just as David humbled himself before Saul, Mephibosheth humbles himself in the exact same way, calling himself a dead dog, realizing that he is unworthy, undeserving of the kindness of the king. This, ladies and gentlemen, should be the attitude when we walk through these doors. This should be our attitude when we wake up in the morning those who are us or who are in Christ. When we think that all, we, all that we have in Christ, this should be our attitude. Christians so much get hung up on why God doesn't just save everybody. They get so hung up and saying, why not them? Why not them? What we should be asking is, why me? Who am I? I am a dead dog, undeserving of this mercy, of this grace. I deserve death, King. We should echo Psalm 8.4. What is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Much like Mephibosheth, we deserve the wrath of God. We deserve death, but instead receive eternal life. And on top of that, more blessing than we could ever think of. Matthew 23, 12 says, Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. The people of God should be characterized by their love and kindness along with their great humility. In doing so, we mimic our Lord Jesus who humbles himself and took on the flesh and went to, to the cross. Next, verses 9 through 12. Then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belonged to Saul and all to his house I have given to our master's grandson. And you and your sons and your servant shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce, that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, According to all that my lord, my king, commands his servant, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table, like one of the king's sons. 
and Mephibosheth had a, uh, had a son whose name was Micah. And all who lived in Ziba, in Ziba's house, became Mephibosheth's servant. Next, we shall see the king's love. Mephibosheth, who once was dependent upon others, will have others dependent upon him. David restores to Mephibosheth his inheritance that was lost by his grandfather. Not only does David give Mephibosheth a great inheritance, but also the means to tend to that inheritance. Just as when we are saved, we are not left to our own. We are given everything by the power of the Holy Spirit to, to live out a sanctified life. We are given out everything we need. The number of sons and servants that, that is listed here of Ziba indicates the property in which Saul had and which is being entrusted into Mephibosheth was vast and great. <clears throat> a great... Um, as great as this is, the love of the king is shown here in verse 11. In verse 11, it says that so Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. He who was orphaned at a young age is now accepted and treated as one of the king's own sons. It would have been enough for David to grant him his life. It would have been enough, more than enough, to, to grant him his inheritance of, of Saul, of the land. And even more than enough to, to say, and you can eat at my table. But David goes and says, and you will be treated as one of my own sons. It is no doubt that David, when looking at Mephibosheth, saw something of Jonathan. And likewise, when we stand before our father, he sees his son. David would have fulfilled his oath by, of Jonathan by just sparing his life to Mephibosheth. but he gives him a place of honor. And the word there says always. To be recognized as one of the king's very sons. Mephibosheth has a son named Micah, in whom is just further evidence that the king's oath to Jonathan has been fulfilled. Not only is he sparing and, and the life and, and showing kindness to the life of Mephibosheth, but also to the son of Mephibosheth. Um, the line of Saul continues. The line of, of David's enemy, his greatest foe, continues. David's mercy toward his enemy continues. <clears throat> the love of the king does not end just simply with Mephibosheth. I've been making parallels of this story, and of course, I'm sure you've all um, found the links between this, but 
the reason I love this story so much is it's just such a beautiful picture of what happens to us. if we do indeed belong to Christ. Like Mephibosheth, by our birthright, we are enemies of God. We too are a fallen and broken people. We too, who are castaways and and in the eyes of God, should be thought of having no worth, no value. We bring nothing to the table but our shame just as Mephibosheth does to David. We too are deserving of death, but receive grace. In Christ, we too have a great inheritance to look forward to. Ephesians 1.11, In Him we have uh, obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will. And we also are invited to the Lord's table at the marriage supper of the Lamb in Revelations 19.9. We too have been adopted as sons and daughters of God, John 1.12. But to all who did receive him, who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Galatians 4, 4 through 5. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of women, born of woman, born under the law to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Ephesians 1.5, He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the riches of His grace. As Mephibosheth asked the question, Who am I? So we ask the same question when we stand before the Lord. Who am I to receive this kindness? Who am I, Lord, that I should receive the blessing of your hand? Who am I that I should be known as your child? But just as David responds to Mephibosheth and says to him, Mephibosheth, not not because of you. Anything that you have done, but because of my love, For Jonathan, are you accepted? So the Lord turns to us and says, not because of what you have done, not because of who you are, but because of my love of my son, are you accepted? You shall be treated as one of my own children. And this is the greatest blessing that we could ever hope to obtain. That we get to stand in the presence of our King. I saved verse 13 for the last because it bothered me. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both his feet. This verse nagged at me, and every commentary, everything I read, gave nothing of this verse. 
nothing. I looked, I looked up other sermons to see maybe how they looked at this last verse, and it was just like no one said anything about it. And maybe it's because it's just thought of as just a summary of the whole chapter. So, Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, and he ate always at the king's table. But what bothered me there is that the writer puts there at the last bit, now he was lame in both his feet. And I honestly, I struggled with this verse so much. And I was, I was really just going to kind of do what everyone else did, say, well, listen, it must just be a summary of the chapter, and, and uh, I'll just kind of leave it at that. Um, but the more I thought about it, the more it just kind of nagged at me. And I read it over and over again, and it was almost as if the writer wanted to remind the reader that though the great blessing that occurred to Mephibosheth he still remained lamed in both his feet. I thought, though we still are accepted by God, though we are still, right now, if we are in Christ, children of God, we are children of the Most High, we still have the effects of our fallen nature here. The effects of sin we still have to deal with here. But the other part of this verse is that he lived in Jerusalem and ate, ate always at the king's table. The king fulfilled his promise to Mephibosheth. And I wonder how many people saw Mephibosheth as the shameful one still. How did they look at him after this? You see, the king's love for Mephibosheth overshadowed his current condition didn't take it away, but it overshadowed it. I'll give you a quick story that brought to my, was brought to my memory actually last night when I was typing this all out. I, uh, when I was 18 years old, I lived, we lived in uh, Don Pedro and I went to a little Baptist church there. And um, when we, it was a small church, um, but I remember hearing about a um, longtime member of the church who was diagnosed with cancer. I had never met the guy, um, but he was uh, he owned a marine shop up there, the marina, or yeah, marine shop worked on the boats and everything like that. And um, he was well known in the community, but I had never met him before because I think he went to the um, early morning service, and I, well, I was 18, so I did not. Um, <laughs> But he was diagnosed with terminal cancer. And I felt pulled to, to go and meet with him. And I told God, no way. No. And I just kept feeling the nagging to go and meet with him. Go and meet with him. Until it, it just, I mean, this was probably weeks. Weeks. Maybe even a month or two where it was just, finally became to the point where I could not take it anymore. And I found out his address, never met the guy before, showed up at on his door, step, knocked on the door, and his wife answered. I introduced myself, told her I go to the church there. I got um, their address from the church directory there and, and uh, um, wanted to see if I could talk 
with her husband, and she welcomed me in, and, and he was sitting there, and I, I believe he was in a wheelchair or a recliner, I forget what it was, and I sat next to him, and uh, I introduced myself to him and, and let him know who I was, and I let him know um, I felt as though God was calling me to, to be there, and I, I didn't know why, and I, me being a young Christian, it's funny that Phil mentioned this just last week, I said, I'm guessing the reason I'm here is to pray over you, lay my hands on you, and heal you. And he smiled, and, uh, and uh, he said, listen, I admire your, your courage to be here. I can tell you're uncomfortable. I can tell, you know, you don't want to be here. Um, but if you feel called that God's asking you to do this for me, I, I would dare not hinder you from doing that. You do whatever you feel called that God's calling you to do. And I must have been wearing my pity for him on my face because he looked at me and said, but I want you to understand something right now. I am thankful. I am thankful because of this cancer. He said, do you know how many people are going to die today who will never say goodbye and get a chance to say goodbye to their family? God's given me six months to say goodbye. What mercy. What mercy he has on me. That he's given me six months to say goodbye to my family. To know that my boy's going to be okay. That my wife is going to be okay. <clears throat> but I know where I'm going. And I get to be with my Savior and King. And for that, I am thankful. I sat there not knowing what to do, realizing not till probably years afterwards that I was not there for him, but he was there for me. He was a prime example. of what it looks like to have one's hope secure in Christ. This man was a prime example of how his condition did not define him, but who he was to the king. Whenever Mephibosheth sat at the table, the king's table, his shameful state would be not noticeable because the king's table would cover his lame feet. At the king's table, Mephibosheth's shame was covered. We likewise now come to the time where we approach the Lord's table. Where our shame is covered. Where we have acceptance. where we have adoptions as the children of God. And this acceptance was purchased by his broken body and his spilled blood. So may we come very humbly, gratefully, and thankfully to this table.
And as we gather together this week around family and loved ones, may we be reminded of the great feast which we who are in Christ will be gathered at around our King's table. We thank you, O God, for the mercies, for the grace that is ours in Christ, not because we deserve it, not because we are worthy of it, but because of your love of the Son who died on our behalf, O God, who did for us what we could never do for ourselves. And God, we come to your table now, not because we are worthy, not because we are deserving, but because without it, without his broken body, without his spilt blood, we are without hope. So we cling to the mercies that are found in Christ and in Christ alone. We cling to the cross. I pray that, God, you would, that you would equip us, that you would encourage and build us up, that we may go out and share, oh Lord, share the kindness that we have in our King. Share this love that we get to enjoy so undeservingly. And may we be the most thankful people on the face of this earth, God. We love you. We thank you. And we ask these things in Christ's name for his glory, oh God. Amen.